We're going to uh, look into God's word now. And I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 onward. If you have a Bible, please use your own Bible. It's important to get familiar with it. If you don't for any reason, I think the scriptures, as I read them out, will come up uh, on the screen. But Matthew 6, uh, verses 19 to 34. Now this morning is a, is a bit of a standalone kind of a message. We're going to take a break from Romans. Uh, we've done three Sundays in Romans chapter 4. Uh, and we're going to start Romans chapter 5 in July. Uh, because we're going to, from next Sunday, do a seven-part series on the seven churches of Revelation. You excited about that? Oh, come on. A little bit at least. Yeah, so we're going to do that from next Sunday onward. Uh, and we thought it would be helpful and appropriate uh, for us to do that over the summer even. And then we'll get back to Romans uh, after that. Now this message this morning, and I picked this passage because it relates uh, to what we talked about last week from Romans 4 on biblical faith. We talked about biblical faith that rests upon who God is, right? If you remember those points, biblical faith rests upon who God is. It's faith uh, that is hope against hope, right? It's a strange sort of a thing, but it hopes against hope. It's faith that doesn't weaken when faced with obstacles. And it's faith that does not fall away in moments of unbelief and even difficulty and challenge. And so this morning we want to continue on in some ways with that to talk about biblical faith or one of the fruits or fruit of biblical faith, which is contentment. Contentment. Contentment is born out of biblical faith. You can't simply sit on a mountain, close your eyes, cross your knees and be content with your life. You'll just be quiet for a long time. That's about it, right? But contentment is much more than that. It's being able to find peace in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the difficulties and of life. And so that kind of contentment, that real contentment, is born out of biblical faith. It doesn't just happen. It's born out of our confidence and trust in God. Only when you take God at his word and you trust in the promises of God, can you enjoy any semblance of peace and contentment and happiness in your life? And not just a semblance of it, but real peace and contentment in your life. It's about having a, a divine view and perspective on things, which we can have through God's word. That's what we want to talk about this morning. Now, just to be clear over here, contentment doesn't mean that we can be lazy or unplanned or do nothing. Sometimes we might mistake that, you know, he's, very, he's not doing anything, he must be content. No, no, I think he needs to do something. Sometimes you gotta, you know, that's, we're not talking about being unplanned or lazy or uninvolved. Doesn't mean that we don't work hard. There's enough in the Bible that talks about diligence and hard work and, and speaks against laziness and, and slothfulness, so to speak. And so, we're not talking about that. But contentment is really about being able to live life joyfully, no matter what the circumstances, because you trust in the Lord. That's what it is, right? To be able to live life joyfully, no matter what the circumstances, because you trust in the Lord. And so uh, Jesus talks about that, and I think Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 34 is a is a very good text on this. In fact, we're familiar with verse 25 onwards, do not be anxious for your life. And so we'll touch on that as well uh, this morning. Now, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. 
and um, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so here's what Jesus says uh, in this particular text. And so we're going to look at a few, we'll make a few observations about, uh, you know, how we can have true contentment uh, in our lives. And so you ready for this? Yeah? If you're taking notes, you can uh, write these down. Let's look at the first one. Firstly, those who are truly content store up treasures in heaven. Those who are truly content store up treasures in heaven. Here's what Jesus says in verses 19 to 21, Matthew 6. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now treasures, what Jesus is saying over here, is that treasures that are laid up on earth are perishable. There is an impermanence to them. They are transient, so to speak. On the other hand, treasures that are stored in heaven are imperishable. They are eternal. They can never be taken away. That's basically, you know, fundamentally the difference between these two things that we treasure. And then at the end he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, whatever we treasure, think, listen to this carefully, whatever we treasure or think highly of, is what our hearts will go after. Whatever you treasure, think about this, or think highly of, is what your heart is going to go after. So for instance, if you decided that your position at work in your company is of the highest priority in your life, then your heart will be restless until you achieve that position that you're aspiring to. You won't be able to sleep. You'll work endlessly. You might cut out relationships in your life because that's what you want to get to because that's your treasure, so to speak. You know, John Calvin, the, the famous theologian and pastor, he writes this. Listen to this carefully. He says, If honor is reckoned the supreme good, meaning if you want honor to be the big thing in your life, the minds of men must be wholly occupied with ambition. If money, covetousness will immediately predominate. If pleasure, it will be impossible to prevent men from sinking into brutal indulgence. What do you treasure? That's what he's getting at over here. Whether it's, uh, it's honor or money or pleasure. If you treasure any of these things, your life is going to be lived out in the pursuit of those things. The heart will follow what you have set up as the supreme good and goal of your life. But Jesus warns us against giving anything in this world that kind of importance. Because ultimately, finally, it will perish. It will all come to nothing. That's why he says this is, these kinds of things are things that will be destroyed by moth and rust, they decay, they break down. Nothing in this world lasts forever. 
Nothing lasts forever. And I know we kind of nod our heads at that. We get it. But we don't live like that. We invest so much in this world, but we don't realize that it doesn't actually last forever. What you rather want to do is to store up treasure in heaven. Now the question is, what does this mean? What does it mean to store up treasure in heaven? And I want to take you to a couple other passages uh, in the New Testament where we read about storing up treasure in heaven. In Matthew 19.21, the Lord Jesus is speaking to a rich young man and he, who asks him how he can have eternal life. Right? So this man asked Jesus, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, he said, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. There's that phrase, then you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Follow me. Now what did the young man do? He walked away. He was sad about that. Because that was his treasure. He couldn't give it up to follow Jesus. Let's go on over here. To another rich man, Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 verse 15, He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be careful. Your life does not consist in the abundance of what you have. Oh, I have this house, that house, this car, that much. It doesn't consist of that. That's, what not, that's not what life is about. And then Jesus tells them a parable about a rich man who wanted to hoard his possessions by building bigger storage facilities. What happened to that man? He died unexpectedly that very night. He was sitting one moment and saying, you know, I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to do this and this and this. And he was gone unexpectedly. And at the end of that parable in Luke chapter 12, verse 21, Jesus says this. He says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now here we are understanding what does it mean to store up treasures in heaven. And so you have the aspect of following Jesus not the world and all of its desires. And here you have the aspect of being rich toward God. Rich toward God. And I think another text over here in Timothy makes it even more clear, I, I think. right? First Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you see what we're doing? Treasure in heaven is, the, is a description over here where we are not setting our hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, where we are to do good, where to be rich in good works, where to be generous and ready to share. And when we do this, we're storing up a treasure in heaven. That's what we're, we're talking about over here. When we lived not for ourselves, but for God and for the, and for the good of other people, we store up treasure in heaven. And contentment comes when this 
is our focus, not ourselves. Just think about your conversations, right? Even after service, how much of it is about yourself and how much of it is really about other people? Just a small example I'm giving you. When we live for other people and for God's glory, we store up treasure in heaven, which means that we follow Christ. We're rich toward God by doing good, rich in good works, being generous and ready to share. That's how we store up treasure in heaven. And so uh, those who are truly content, that's the first one, those who are truly content store up treasures in heaven. All right, let's go to the second point. Those who are truly content will see the beauty of generosity. Will see the beauty of generosity or will share what you have generously or will rejoice in what is good. Maybe that's another way to put it. Now, this really is an application of what we've already talked about in the first point. But it's interesting how Jesus puts it over here. So look with me in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. Here's what Jesus says. He says this, he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? How great is the darkness? Now, the eyes of a person are important because with it, we look at everything, right? It's our first point of contact, if you like, with the world, with the way we perceive what's going on in the world. And so we look around and we perceive and we understand what's going on in the world and we make judgment on the things that we see around us. That's why the eyes are the lamp of the body, informing the person of reality as they receive information. They inform you inwardly of what you see externally. That's the idea of the eyes being the lamp of the body. But the question is, what kind of eyes do you have? Because he talks about good eyes and bad eyes. What kind of eyes do you have? A healthy eye will receive light and the entire person will be illumined. Think of it this way. You know, think of the, the windows in your kitchen. And we Indians, we love to cook with a lot of oil. Right? Oh man, we can load it up. Yeah. And so we put a lot of oil and over time, what happens to the windows? We have that jolly window in our kitchen. Right? It collects grime. My wife has been after me for days. Do something about it. You know, it's got grime on the window. And so it collects up because of that oil. And what happens is that over time, it doesn't allow light in to that kitchen. But then when we clean it and we scrub it down, it suddenly allows light to pour into that kitchen. If your window is dirty, then light won't come in. Similarly, listen to this, if your eye is bad or a more appropriate word is evil, if your eye is evil, begrudging so to speak, your whole body will be full of darkness. Your whole body will be full of darkness. So when we see things with prejudiced eyes, 
with judgmental eyes, with proud eyes, with self-important eyes, it affects our relationships and how we live in the world. But why does Jesus use a good eye and a bad eye analogy in speaking about treasures and money? What does that have to do with treasures and money? Let me just go a little bit deeper into this and unpack it for you. You okay? You're following with me? I hope you are awake. I know it's a bit humid and warm and all of that stuff, but let's try and focus, all right? Here's, here's why Jesus uses this good eye and bad eye analogy. And I think Matthew 20 uh, verse uh, 15 helps us understand this a little bit more. In Matthew 20, Jesus had just told uh, his followers the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And you might remember this, right? Because in the, some of the workers agreed to work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So they came, they worked, and you know, they, was, they were promised uh, a denarius for their work. Some workers the master hired at 9 a.m., three hours later. And some he hired at 5 p.m., one hour before closing time. Finally, when the day was done at 6 p.m., he paid all his workers the same amount of money, one denarius. Ooh, how could you do that? That's so unfair. That's exactly what the 6 a.m. guys said. We came at 6 a.m. They came at 5 p.m. You're paying them the same thing. In other words, this master was lavishly generous to those who worked only one hour, but he paid the agreed amount to those who worked 12 hours. He didn't cut their amount. He paid them what he promised. But he was generous to those who came in the last hour. And sure enough, those who came early grumbled because they were paid, those who came late were paid as much as them who worked all day. It's at this point that the master uses this bad eye analogy or this picture, right? And he, he talks about, uh, here's what he says. Uh, and the master says in Matthew 20 verse 15, here's what he says. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, unfortunately, the English translation is, is sort of a paraphrase of what actually is written in the Greek. The, do you begrudge my generosity? The, 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 the more literal way of looking at it is to say, or is your eye evil because I am good. Is your eye evil because I am good? In other words, I'm being generous, but you're really looking at me with such anger and bitterness and rage. That's what they're doing with their eyes. They're looking at this master and they say, how could you ever done that? How could you do this? You know, with your eyes. That's what they're doing over here. And that's an evil eye. They're begrudging of the generosity of the master. Now, did the master pay them what he promised? Absolutely, yes. But he chose to be generous with the last hour, guys. What's your problem with that? What's your issue with that? You see, that evil eye of Matthew 20, verse 15, is an eye that cannot see the beauty of generosity. 
It's an eye that cannot see the beauty of grace. It's an eye that, you know, that, that, uh, that cannot see the unexpected blessing that others enjoy as something that is a good thing. It's an eye that is blind to what is truly beautiful and bright and precious and godlike. It's a worldly eye. It sees money and material reward as more desired than a beautiful display of free, gracious, godlike generosity. And that's what Jesus is talking about over here. When you come back to the passage in Matthew 6, he's talking about that eye that cannot celebrate what is generous and gracious about who God is. You see, a lot of discontent in our life comes from looking at other people and saying, how could they have that? How could they be like that? Why should they get that thing? Why should they have this success? A lot of our unhappiness comes from looking across the fence and saying, the grass is greener on the other side. How could they have that? And we begrudge that. We're unhappy with God doing good in their life when we're going through whatever we're going through. And that leads to discontent. Look at your life. How much time do you spend grumbling and complaining about the things in your life? But is it really that bad? Is it really something outside of the control of God, outside of the presence of God to walk you through it? What kind of an eye do you have? A, a gen an eye that is good will celebrate the generosity and the grace of God and celebrate generosity in a whole way. In Acts 20 verse 36, Jesus said, and, and this is a quote of what Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Second Corinthians uh, 8, 9, you know, you know, brings us back to the gospel. In the context, he's talking about giving and he's encouraging one church to give to another church. And in that context, he says, Second Corinthians 8, 9, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So those who are truly content and happy are those who store up treasure in heaven and those who see the beauty of generosity. Number three, those who are truly content will serve God above all else. Matthew 6 verse 24. Look with me in your Bibles to this verse, Matthew 6, 24. Here's what it says. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now again over here, just, you know, the English translation sometimes just softens the idea of it. Uh, in what he's talking about over here, but probably a more accurate translation of this verse at the end of the verse will be no one can belong to two owners. Not just no one can serve two masters, which is true, but it's a little softer than this. No one can belong to two owners. You can't belong to two owners. You see, slavery in those days meant that you were owned by your master. You didn't just 
You're not like a, a maid today that comes and goes. You were owned by the master. You belonged to them. You could not leave or do whatever you wanted, so to speak. And when you think of it like this, when Jesus says this, it makes what Jesus is saying even more vivid for us. Because money and wealth has the power to own us. You think you own a lot of things. No. It's probably the other way around. Possibly, depending on your heart. It's possible that those things own you. They control you. And Jesus says you cannot belong or you, you cannot belong to two owners to serve them. You will either hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot belong to or serve bo both God and money. So here's a few things just you know, to unpack that a little bit. We serve money when we live only to make more of it. Just think about these, right? Run it through your mind and, and, and as a grid and say, is this my attitude, attitude towards money and wealth? We serve money when we live to only to make more of it. We serve money when all we can think about is money. We serve money when we pride ourselves in how much we have of it. We serve money when we're anxious that we don't have enough of it. We serve money when we don't share it generously and cheerfully. We're begrudging in our generosity. We serve money when our happiness is tied to what it can buy us. Shopping therapy. You know, they say that if you're feeling down, just go shopping. Not window shopping, shopping, right? And then we'll be happy. You see, money is the most prominent idol in the world today. And, and the odd thing is, for Christians, we celebrate it. We actually applaud each other for it. We, and, and it's true, and I don't want to say that, that wealth and possessions and success are bad things. They, they're, they're blessings from the Lord, absolutely yes. But our attitude towards them might be ungodly. Our attitude towards them might be ungodly. And in fact, it's, a, it's an idol that we sometimes, strangely, we applaud. Oh, you made more. Good on you. We applaud it. And so we do more of it. And Jesus spoke, you know, probably more than anything else, he spoke about wealth and money and the kind of power and hold that it has over people. You know, Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus for what? 30 pieces of silver. And we can look at him and say, ooh, but what have you given up Jesus for? What is, he, what is his value to you? One lakh? Ten lakhs? One crore? Is that what you're willing to, to pursue at the cost of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is it? The truth about money is that it will ultimately fail you. It's perishable. Moth and rust will destroy it. You know, money is a terrible master, but it can be a wonderful, wonderful slave. If it owns you, you're goners. But if you own it and control it and manage it, it's a useful, useful tool in your hands. John Wesley, a famous, uh, in, in his sermon 
uh, on money. He has these points. He says, and he says it like this, and I like what he says. He says, gain all you can, save all you can, so that you can give all you can. Gain all you can, save all you can, so that you can give all you can. And in fact, he did that in his own life. He gave most of the money he earned, he gave it away. And he says this. Listen to this carefully. This concerns us. He says, in the hands of God's children, money is food for the hungry, clothing for the naked, shelter for the stranger. With money, we can care for the widow and the fatherless, defend the oppressed, meet the need of those who are sick or in pain. That's a good use of your money. Don't hold it up. When you die, you take nothing with you. But if you can use it like this, it's a good use of your money. And so we serve God above all else. That leads to contentment. All right, let's look at the fourth one and we'll finish with this. Those who are truly content will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Those who are truly content will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And, and I'm not going to send, spend a lot of time on this last section, but I want to take you through these verses. All right? I'm just going to read uh, them for us. But basically, Jesus is concluding all that he has said in a way before. That's why he says, therefore, I tell you, verse 25. So in conclusion to what I've told you, what we've looked at so far is this. And I'm going to read from verses 24 uh, to 30, 25 to 34. Here's what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not more much more clothe you, O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I love this. One of those favorite go-to texts, right? When you're going through a difficult time and you come to this and it says, don't be anxious. You know, one of the most repeated phrases in the Bible is do not fear, do not be afraid. I think it's like 350 or more times. Do not be afraid, do not fear. Do not be anxious for your life. And we do that by looking unto the Lord, not ourselves, nor anything else. We look unto the Lord so that we might not be afraid of life. Someone has said this. He said, worry is sin 
because it denies the wisdom of God. It says that he doesn't know what he's doing. It denies the love of God because it says he doesn't care. And it denies the power of God because it says that he isn't able to deliver me from whatever is causing me to worry. Do not be anxious for your life. Do not be anxious. God clothes the, the birds of the field. He feeds the birds of the air. How much will he not also care for you who is far more valuable than those things to God? And then at the end he says, but instead of being anxious, instead of being discontent and unhappy about your life, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you as well. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what does that mean? It means primarily, listen to this carefully, it means primarily that we are concerned about the will of God. We're concerned about the will of God to do the will of God. In fact, when in just in, back in chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he says this, he says, your kingdom come, because we're concerned about the kingdom of God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're talking about over here. To seek first the kingdom of God is to desire God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it starts with you. It starts with God's will being done in your life, in your own heart. When you take God's word seriously, this is the will of God. You don't have to look you know, far and wide and say, Oh Lord, show me your will. No, no, it's right here. Revealed will of God. Start with this. And he says, take my word seriously and do my will. And when you do my will, you're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you but you do this as of primary importance in your life in fact the Lord Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount and we'll finish with this verse as well and he finishes the Sermon on the Mount talking about two men who built houses I love that it's good Right, it fits with what we're talking about. They built houses. They love their houses. But one man built it on the rock. And the other man built his house on the sand. And Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 24 and 25. He says this. This is important for us. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, which is the Sermon on the Mount, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, which is doing the will of God, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock when life beat against that house with all of its oppression and difficulty and trials and challenges that house stood and that house is us hearing the words of Jesus and doing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's the way to contentment. I'm going to give you a moment to bow your heads uh, and allow the Spirit of God to
apply particular things to your mind and heart this morning. Again, lots of things have been said, but I'm certain that there are particular things that God is saying to each one of us that is unique to our life and our situation. And ask the Lord to help you not just hear it, but to be doers of his word. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Help us to not just be hearers of it, but doers of it. And in following you faithfully, closely, that we would enjoy deep contentment and happiness and joy in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray.